and he is risen indeed, and it is great, great to be in the house with you this morning on this Easter Sunday. For those of you that I haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Mac Richard, and I'm the pastor around here, and we are honored that you would choose to celebrate Easter with us, the fact of what we believe. I want you to turn to the person sitting next to you with Easter, passion, and enthusiasm. Tell them the struggle is real. The struggle is real. Now, if you spend any amount of time at all cruising and perusing social media, you'll come across a little thing called a hashtag. It's usually kind of a cutesy little saying at the end of a post that follows the pound sign. And to kind of make sure we're all on the same page, we're going to do this together. We'll do, do like this is the international sign language sound for a hashtag, okay? Just say it to you with me. The struggle is real. The struggle is real. Now, even Easter, now, here's what you got to understand. Usually, the struggle is real does not note any kind of earth-shattering, life-changing condition or social media post on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or any of that other stuff. It's just kind of a kind of tongue-in-cheek, pithy little thing to say, and it's, it's usually kind of cutesy along the way. And even Easter calls out the struggle is real hashtags. Let me show you just a couple that I'm talking about here. First of all, the, this first guy says, Happy Easter, everybody. I'm cutting back on candy this year. But then four days later, he's swimming in chocolate. The hashtag is, I mean, the struggle is real. The struggle is real. This, this, it's a struggle to say it. The next one, that moment when you get your Easter egg early and your cheat meal isn't until Sunday. Do it with me. The struggle is real. You know what I'm talking about. But it's not restricted to Easter. This is something that happens year-round. I think this next one certainly came from Austin. My head says Jim, but my heart says tacos. <laughs> the struggle is real. We all can appreciate that one. That's out there. Sometimes, though, the struggle is real does address pressing, global, social issues like this one right here. Take a minute today and say a prayer for middle school girls around the world. Hashtag One Direction. <laughs> You, you know from that that <sighs> Zane is leaving the band. <laughs> the struggle is real. I promised I wouldn't do this. <clears throat> Zane's leaving the band. Anyway, it's serious. It's serious. It's very serious. Now, you know, you, you don't have to be a social media maven to understand that the struggle is real. You, you really have to just be alive for about 45 minutes to be able to know that in life, the struggle is real. And I'm not just talking about stuff that's trivial or even traumatic. Really, everything that we treasure requires struggle. Think, think about the things in your life that you love the most. Think about the things in your life that are worth having, knowing, and experiencing. To get there always requires struggle. That's just a part of the human condition. We work better when we work harder as human beings. That's just a fact. I'll give you an example. If you're here today and you're not married, maybe you're a student or a single adult, and you think one day, one day I'd like to be married, and I want to marry somebody who is beautiful, somebody who is hot, somebody who loves Jesus, somebody who is smart, somebody who has a great sense of humor, somebody who is encouraging, somebody who loves me unconditionally, you better be prepared to struggle to find that person. 
If you want to raise great kids to be great adults who one day move out of your house and buy their own food and pay their own rent, you got to know there's going to be struggle attached to that, sugar. That's just a fact of life. If you want to have really and truly a, a growing, vibrant faith and relationship with Christ, that's going to take struggle. The struggle is real. As a matter of fact, I want to just digress from this Easter message, if I can, for just a second, and let you know that next weekend, I'm starting a series of messages called, The Struggle is Real. And I want to invite you to be a part of this. Now, for some people, Easter, Sunday morning, coming to church is kind of an exception that proves the rule, and we totally understand that. Nobody's going to make fun of that or mock that, but we do want to invite you. I want to kind of lovingly challenge you to be a part of what's going to happen next week as we Take some time as a church to look at the struggle is real, to see how God calls us, how he equips us to embrace the struggles that matter, but also to escape the struggles that hinder. That's where we're starting next weekend, and we would love for you to be a part of that after Easter, starting next Sunday. But now as, as cutesy as the struggle is real may be in social media world or as kind of out there as it might be for a sermon series idea... I don't think you could find a better description of the Easter story than the struggle is real. Because the story of Easter is the story of where God, once and for all, forever settled the score. It's that exact moment in time where God, in the person of his son Jesus Christ, made our struggle his struggle. Where Jesus took our place in the ultimate foundational struggle that every single one of us deals with and wrestles with on a day-in, day-out basis. And if you read the biblical account, you start to see how this struggle started to manifest itself in the life of Jesus. You'll remember the story from that Good Friday, the first Good Friday when Jesus sat down to the Passover meal with his closest followers, the 12, who would soon become the 11 because Judas had already begun to devise his betrayal. But in that meal, Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what was on the way. And the Bible says that after that meal, Jesus adjourned to a garden to pray because he knew that his time was at hand. He knew that the cross was quickly approaching And he withdrew to this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and he took with him three, not the whole 12, but just the three closest confidants of his disciples. And I want you to look at what the Bible says in Mark chapter 14. It says, he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now, I don't want to minimize Jesus' anguish in this moment, but I do want to point out the fact that Jesus, the Son of the living God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, experienced distress, that he experienced this grief literally where he felt as though his soul were being crushed to the point of death, but as distressed as he was in that moment, I believe that that was just foreshadowing for the moment that was to come, 
The moment on the cross where the Bible just one chapter later in Mark chapter 15 records the words of Jesus as he hung on the cross on that good Friday afternoon. In Mark chapter 15, the Bible says at 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you abandoned me? Now, when, you, when somebody is abandoned, you, you know that somebody didn't do something. If, if they abandon somebody because they dropped the ball, that's on the abandoner. But sometimes we can do things that cause people to abandon us and to walk away. Why would Jesus say, God, you have, my Father has abandoned me? Some translations say, you have forsaken me. And to understand that, We've got to understand what was actually transpiring there on the cross. We've got to understand what was really going on beneath the superficial. I, I think at Easter, particularly those of us who have seen now the classic film, The Passion of Christ, it can become overwhelming to consider the physical anguish that Jesus went through. On the heels of a flogging conducted at the hands of Roman soldiers who were highly skilled, in this form of torture, uh, of bringing people to a point of such pain, but literally within inches of death, after that, Jesus carried the cross beam that would be attached to the cross up the mountain called Golgotha, was nailed to that cross, and there hung on it for hours, suffering an asphyxiation, a suffocating death. And yet that pales in comparison to the spiritual and the emotional pain that he felt at this moment of abandonment. If you've ever been abandoned, if you've ever been betrayed, you know that there is no greater pain in the world. And I would suggest to you that this moment is the greatest pain ever experienced by a human being, not only physically, but relationally, spiritually, and emotionally, that Jesus went through this now, it begs the question, why? Why did Jesus say, you have abandoned me? And the short answer is, the struggle is real. The short answer is that he was going through this, but to understand really and get beneath the surface, you've got to see what was going on. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that he made him, God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He knew no sin, and yet he became my sin and your sin. Everything you've ever done wrong, everything that I've ever done wrong that I don't want anybody to know about, Jesus took on himself on the cross. He became sin. Now, I want to ask you a question. If you're here today and you are, let's say, under the age of 20, you're less than 20 years old. Raise your hand just real quick. Okay, you know what it's like when you're under the age of 20 when you feel like your parents don't quite get it. You know what I'm talking about? Where you just kind of go, what are they thinking? Or are they thinking? Does the brain still operate when people are that old? You start to kind of wonder these things as, as, a, as you're growing up. And, and those, those questions become more prevalent as you grow older in your adolescence, in your teen years, when you are very, very young. 
four years old, five years old, most of the time, your parents were awesome. But when you were 14 or 15, they began to lose it. And as you get a little older, we all kind of get a little bolder, don't we? And sometimes when we think our parents don't get it as we get a little older, we like to tell them. Sometimes we'll say things like, Dad, that's so stupid. Mom, everybody's going. And we kind of get a little attitude. Don't raise your hand, but you know what I'm talking about. I know we've all been there. Jesus never did that. He was never disrespectful to Mary and Joseph. He never tried to assert his authority over theirs. Jesus never got selfish. Husbands, can you imagine that? Jesus was never ever asserting his wants, needs, and desires above those of somebody else for his own self-interest. He never did that. And yet he took on himself every time I've ever done that or anything else that would fall under the heading of sin. You know, I remember when Julie told me that we were expecting our first child. We, we didn't know boy or girl at the time. Obviously, we later found out that it would become Emily. But I'll never forget the night that she told me. I was in seminary. We had talked about maybe thinking about having children, maybe start thinking and trying and all those kind of good things. But we didn't know. And so we were out to dinner this night. We were living in the Dallas-Fort Worth area at the time and at a very, very nice, very expensive restaurant called Macaroni Grill. And I reached over... <laughs> I reached over to get a piece of bread, and when I turned back around, Julie had put a coffee mug on the table in front of me. I thought, that's weird. We haven't even ordered dinner. It's not time for dessert and coffee yet, babe. I I mean, I love you. (laughs) But I looked on the coffee cup, and around the side of it, it said, real dads do diapers. (laughs) And I'm sharp. (laughs) And I went... And just for the record, Julie was pregnant. We were not pregnant. Guys, don't ever say, we're pregnant. No, we're not. (laughs) She's pregnant. But I remember that night just being like, oh, this is going to happen. This is happening. And then I was like, this is happening. We were so excited. But I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, almost 21 years later, we had not one fat clue what we were getting into. No idea. We had no idea the, the degree of love and awe that you could feel in the delivery room when that new life came into the world. We had no idea how far projectile vomit can travel in a moving car. We had no idea how long a temper tantrum could last in public. We had no idea the fun of seeing them grow up and develop and learn how to shoot a jump shot, learn how to make school work their own and not ask us for help because I've done sixth grade. We had no idea what it would be like to see them come into high school and discover their voice literally and figuratively and and excel in certain areas and learn to bounce back from challenges in other areas. We had no idea the pain that would be attached to that day we had to drop her in college and come back home without her. We had no idea the vein of love that God was opening up inside of us 
But Jesus Christ knew exactly what he was doing when he went to the cross. He knew exactly what would transpire. As Max Lucado says so eloquently, he chose the nails. He chose the nails for you. He chose the nails for me by name. And so he became sin. But that wasn't the end of the story, was it? Make no mistake about it, ladies and gentlemen, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead physically and bodily, that he died on that Roman cross with no pulse and no breath and no life, descended into hell because he became sin and yet did what we couldn't have done for ourselves when he rose again from the dead. That happened. This is the fact of Easter. We do not celebrate a metaphor. We do not celebrate a myth. We celebrate the fact of the empty tomb. And that is where it starts to get fun. Look at what the Bible says in Romans chapter 4. It says, he was handed over to die because of our sins. And he was raised to life to make us right with God. He was raised to life to make us right with God. You see, it is only the resurrection of Jesus that makes us right with God. We've all got sin. You've got sin. I've got sin. All God's children got sin. And yet, Jesus did what we couldn't have done when he rose from the dead to make us right with God. And it makes sense that sin leads to death. It just, a lot of people like to argue that. It's like, that doesn't seem right. How could a loving God? Listen, it makes sense. Follow this. If God is the one who gives life, if God is the one who loves us unconditionally and perfectly and created us to live in relationship with him, if I reject that, if I turn away from that, then it only makes sense that I'm turning away from that life, I'm turning away from that love, I'm turning away from that purpose, I'm turning away from that peace, I'm turning away from that joy, and if I'm turning away from that life, then I'm turning toward death that that's the fact that's why jesus died when he became sin he bore the consequences of sin but when he rose again from the grave he rose again with the offer of a new life and it's an offer that he alluded to in the days immediately before his arrest and betrayal his trial before a kangaroo court and execution. The Bible says in the book of John that Jesus came to the town of Bethany. And Jesus was familiar with Bethany because it was in Bethany that his friends, Mary and Martha, and their brother Lazarus lived. But on this particular trip to Bethany, Jesus was there because Lazarus had died. And as a matter of fact, in the book of John, it's the shortest verse in the whole Bible. If you've ever kind of thought about maybe starting to memorize some scripture, start with this one. Jesus wept. Two words. Jesus wept. And he wept because he grieved the death of his friend Lazarus. And, and the Bible says something very interesting, that when Jesus came into Bethany, Mary stayed in the house grieving. Mary, the sister of Lazarus, she stayed in the house to grieve. She didn't even come out to greet Jesus, but Martha went out to greet Jesus. 
But she didn't go out to greet him with open arms. Now keep in mind, remember Martha. Martha is the one on a previous visit who had kind of been scurrying all around, making sure that the bread was cooked just right and the places were set just so and everything was in its place and clean while Mary just hung out with Jesus. that's, That's Martha's personality. And so when Jesus enters Bethany upon the death of Lazarus, she says, Lord, where were you? Where were you? If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Where were you? I love me some Martha. I love that the Bible puts that in there. Because I've prayed that prayer before. I don't have a brother named Lazarus. But I've prayed the where are you God prayer. Where are you? Where were you when I hurt so badly? Where were you? At this moment, where were you when I lost that family member? Where were you when the marriage fell apart? God, where were you? And Jesus responds in a fascinating fashion. He says, he doesn't get offended. He doesn't like, what do you mean where was I? I was busy. I'm here saving the world, remember? He didn't do that. He just asked a question. Jesus did that a lot. He said, Mary, do you believe that your brother Lazarus will rise again? And she said, of course. He'll he'll rise at the last day, at the day of the resurrection. But look at what Jesus said to her at that point. John 11, verse 25. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. He doesn't beat around the bush, does he? He says he is the resurrection and the life. Jesus did what no one else could do, what no one else has offered to do. He rose from the dead with the offer of new life. But I think it's important to make sure that we understand what did he say? Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. See, a lot of times we create this, this false wall and we think, like, it's about where are you going to go? Are you going to go to heaven? You're going to go to heaven? And that matters. But Jesus here says it's not limited to just what happens when we die, it's about living in the here and now. It's about really living in relationship with him when he conquered the grave. He won the struggle that is so real. And he offers life to anyone who would take it. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And in this moment, I want to ask you to genuinely consider that offer. To genuinely consider the fact that Jesus says he is the resurrection and the life. And anyone who believes in him will live even after dying. To know that that promise means the here and now and eternity forever.
existed the savior of the world was fallen his body on the cross his blood poured out for us the weight of every curse upon him
ask you if you would just remain in a spirit of prayer for a moment with your heads bowed and your eyes closed because it's a sacred moment if you're here today on this resurrection morning and you have never personally accepted the promise of new life from Jesus and stepped into a relationship with him, we want to give you the opportunity to do that just right now. To know that you know that you know you're forgiven and you are living the life you were created to live in relationship with him. If that's you in this place today, then I want to just invite you to pray right where you're sitting. Just silently give God your life, every part of who you are. Just pray something like this in your own words silently. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I believe you are the resurrection and the life. And so I openly declare that you are Lord, my Lord. I believe in my heart you were raised from the dead. And so I confess my sin to you. I claim your forgiveness. And I give you my life forever. Beginning right here, right now. I pray this prayer, Lord, in your name. I want to ask everyone just to remain with your heads bowed for a moment. And if you just prayed that prayer and you meant it for the first time in your life, definitively, no doubt about it, then I want to make sure that you understand this is the most important moment of your life. And it's a moment that you need to mark. I want to invite you with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. If that was your prayer, if you would just mark this moment in your life by raising your hand. Just raise your hand up high over your head to stamp this moment indelibly in your mind and in your heart. This is your Easter moment. And as a church, we want to be a safe place for you a place to grow in that new faith, to discover everything that God has in store for you and to leave behind the stuff that he wants you to leave behind. And so as a church, we honor this moment in your life. We celebrate this moment in your life. And we do that with a family tradition that we have around here. As you put your hands down, we like to put our hands together to tell you welcome home.